0: Welcome to How Not To DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best Dungeon Masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my newest patron, Brenda. You helped make the show possible. Thanks so much for your support. If you'd like to support the show, Want a shout out on my next episode or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com HN, the number two DM. One more quick announcement I'm really excited about. I have a few friends in the TTRPG podcasting world like Bombarded who donate a percentage of their ad and patron money to good local causes. So I've decided to follow suit. As of January 2022, 10% of the money I bring in from ads and supporters like you will be donated to EnCircle, a nonprofit organization with the mission to bring the family and community together to enable LGBTQ youth to thrive. And now onto this episode's guest announcement. Keith Amon is the author of the popular D&D 5e blog, The Monsters Know What They Are Doing, which breaks down the stat blocks of all the creatures in the Monster Manual and how you might best use them in combat encounters. The blog's popularity led to Keith writing a series of books on the subject, including Live to Tell the Tale for Player Tactics, and most recently, How to Defend Your Lair, talking about dungeon, stronghold, and other structures, and their purposes and layouts to make your players think strategically. Enjoy!
1: I first got into role-playing games at a pretty early age. I found out about Dungeons and Dragons from the September-October 1979 issue of Games Magazine and um, told my mom about it. She bought me the Holmes Blue Box set and uh, we opened it up, could not figure out what to do with it. (laughs) It took me... Uh, several more years before I got together with a group of friends who had figured out their way around the system and were playing the game for realsies. And uh, so even though I had the basic d set, I really jumped right into AD&D with both feet. From there, went to Villains and Vigilantes, uh, Shadowrun. I was I was an early adopter of Shadowrun, first edition, second edition. The third edition of that game came out just as I was sort of starting not to have time in my life for a lot of role-playing gaming and uh, moved away from uh, where I went to college and so didn't really have a group. And... Um, yeah, so uh, I was out of it for a long time, uh, went more into board gaming for quite a few years, uh, then came back to role-playing gaming with 3rd edition GURPS, and uh, came to 5th edition D&D right around the time it came out, uh, when my wife asked me to DM a group for her and some of her coworkers, So that's where I re-entered the uh, the DD time stream.
0: Yeah it was fun to read that in the intro of your book kind of uh, the full circle you made uh, all the way back to fifth edition and also it's it's just kind of fun to hear about other people uh, wanting to play at work because that's how I started uh, my coworkers we're sitting around and a few of them were talking about this game they're playing. And I said, well, this sounds really fun. You know, what is this? And they invited me along and that's really how I got introduced to So it's, uh, it's fun to to hear other people doing that too.
1: It's funny. I was actually going to just run a, a fantasy campaign for these people using GURPS and my, my wife sat me down and said, no, they want to play Dungeons and Dragons. We're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. I said, okay, okay, okay. Okay. So I went out and, and, got the rules, and, and uh, you know, the funny thing is now you look back at, at GURPS 3rd Edition, 4th Edition, and they seem so dated. That kind of crunch has really gone out of style hard.
0: Yeah, there's a few people out there who really love the crunchy games, you know? I've played a few different games. I don't feel like I've played any that are super crunchy yet. I wonder if I'd like them, being that I work with numbers and stuff all day, and I kind of like that stuff. But I also it's kind of nice to escape that and and do a lot of more of like the, the role play and that kind of thing too. So I I can see, you know, um, there's room for, for both types of games, certainly, but yeah, I think you're right. There's definitely a shift towards more flexible and more role play focused games. Yeah. Do you recall the very first game you ran? Was that with, uh, with that group in school that, you know, those friends that you made, or was it later on? And do you remember kind of how it went?
1: Oh, yeah, it was it was with my school friends. So around the end of high school, I uh, fell in with a DD group of uh, four people, myself and three friends. My good friend Julian, who I'm, I'm still very close to today was the first dungeon master of that group. And then we rotated through us. Mm-hmm. So um, my friend Matt, DM second burn DM third I batted cleanup Um, We rotated the DMing and and we had a group of four PCs But whenever one of us was DMing we ran our own PC as an NPC and uh, So we did two rotations of that before um, Well, I guess it it was more like one and a half rotations of that. I think we played six adventures total uh, with that group and uh, before we all went our separate ways,
0: yeah. So each of you would kind of pick up after the end of a, a kind of story arc, and then start something else. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, we 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 played the same characters. It was mm-hmm. it was the same party, and we just rotated through DMing for that party. Yeah. Although at the at the end of my adventure, I actually had my PC do a heel turn and uh, wrote him out of the story and changed PCs. I also uh, game mastered Shadowrun when uh when we were playing that in college in fact i think i probably um did the most game mastering of that shadow run group uh there there were two of us who did it and i think i did the lion's share Mm -hmm. so the question
0: that you know is kind of the focal point of the show the thing that i really love asking people is the worst mistakes you feel like you've made running games and this can be specific instances or big kind of overarching problems or you know issues that you encountered uh the reason i loved asking is because i love talking to people who uh you know a a lot of us in the community might look up to as i don't know if i want to say experts but you know people who whose advice we rely on when we're when we're kind of thinking about things for our own games and i love just figuring out and, and finding out you know all the things that you've done wrong too that helps humanize you and and uh but yeah, so are there any that kind of stick out on your mind specific or, or broad that you want to share with us?
1: I have a lot of years under my belt with this, and so a lot of the simple mechanical stuff I can I can pretty much you know do on autopilot. But I, I would say the big mistake that I have made in the past uh and the not terribly distant past. Yeah. Uh, is, is over-scripting adventures um, so that uh, the players have only only one viable path through the story. I've come to recognize that. I write the adventures in a m- looser way now and and allow more different ways to get to the same important beats. And not trying, to, not trying to put so many beats in each adventure, but just keeping them shorter, more flexible, and allowing for the possibility that they might go in crazy, unpredictable directions.
0: As the players are wont to do, yeah. Do you feel like that could be partially a side product of your love of designing encounters and making them really meaningful and interesting? Or do you think they're kind of separate things
1: no, I think it has more to do with wanting to tell a story. Mm. And what I do is related to that because, you know, I have my my friend Julian who is wildly creative, very original, comes up with unbelievable stuff, and I don't have that same kind of fertile imagination that he has. So, if I want to impress him, I have to compete in a different category. Yeah. And <laughs> what i go for is trying to make the world feel as real and convincing as possible that is what c- connects more directly with what i do in terms of monster analysis but uh-huh. then but that in itself comes out of a role playing place you know that that comes out of wanting to inhabit the creatures inhabit the world and use them to tell a story and so mm. That makes sense. So I think that that impulse is is where the over scripting tendency definitely came from. Mm.
0: All right. Now on the flip side of that question, what are some of your favorite memories of things that have gone well? Improvisation, combat, role-playing, etc., that you know are, are memories that you all still fondly recall and, and recant.
1: So when I was uh, for, for my wife and her coworkers, that group, uh, which is still my main group. We did Lost Mine of Phandelver, segued from that directly into the Tyranny of Dragons arc, Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat. And in addition to the main story, which is both very linear and geographically all over the place, there's a lot of travel. Every episode of that adventure takes place someplace else. Which makes it very conducive for inserting PC specific side quests. Mm. And so our campaign ran six years because I kept inserting side quests for everybody. Everyone got their own side quest. For my wife, whose character uh, was a dwarf ranger who had been the chief of her own village until she abdicated heard news of various simultaneous disasters taking place there and went back to see what she could do to help. And uh, the village had been partially buried by a mudslide, which also took down part of the palisade fence. And as a result, they were vulnerable to these raids by goblinoids. There were various things going on her, her younger sister, was now the chief and had been thrust into that role without expecting it and was unprepared for the job and and was still trying to get her legs as a leader. And, and so there's a lot going on here. Uh, also, it was a very traditionalist, very caste-bound society. So a couple of the beats in this adventure were raids by the Goblinoids, and they came being led by some hobgoblins and organized by some hobgoblins. And they had built mangonels that they were using to launch flaming projectiles to set buildings in the village on fire. So one of these fights begins with a flaming projectile going straight through the roof of the Temple of Baranar and setting it on fire. Now, partially, I wrote this episode thinking our druid has been preparing create and destroy water again and again and again and never gets any opportunity to cast it. (laughs) Finally, she will have an opportunity to cast this spell. She didn't prepare it. Of course. (laughs) She was right there by the temple and had not prepared this spell, so it's on fire, and she has no way of putting it out. So she decides instead... A, to cast Daylight because this raid is happening at night and some of our some of the PCs in the party don't have dark vision, so she wants to help them. And then she wants to get to the wall as fast as possible where the fighting is, so she wild shapes into a giant eagle and flies there. Basic sensible response to uh, a situation where she can't do anything where she is. But I started thinking, okay, so how are the people who see this happen going to interpret it? Mm. And in particular, what if they don't see the whole thing? And you know, when you are a druid, of course, and you wild shape all of your gear changes shape with you. She had cast daylight on her shield, but as soon as she became the Eagle, the shield became part of her. So... After the goblin raid, which they successfully repel, the next day there's this very somber scene in which the dwarves are burying their dead. And what the what the PCs realize as they're listening to the funeral service is that instead of calling Baranar the All-Mother and all of the traditional epithets that are associated with her, people are starting to refer to her as Firebird. And as it turns out, several of the villagers had witnessed once the Temple of Barinar caught fire, their goddess rising from the flames in the form of a radiant eagle and flying to the wall to help her people survive the onslaught and save the day. And so, because of what the druid did, these dwarven villagers now now think that they saw an avatar of Baranar come to them in their time of need. <laughs> and uh, my my wife turned to the the druid's player and said, "You broke my people's religion." <laughs> I was gonna say, "It sounds like she she uh,
0: broke the first rule of the prime directive, right?" Like like a star trek thing but yeah
1: very funny yeah i just I, you know one of the things that that has always stood out to me as a great way to put more realism in the game is to really think about what everyone knows those discrepancies are really interesting to me what do the players know what do the npcs and the monsters know what do they not know that the other group does? And how do people act based on incomplete or incorrect information? I, I love exploring what happens to people's decisions or NPCs or monsters' decisions when they don't have all the information or when the information they have is incorrect or when they have the upper hand information-wise, when they know something that you don't and And I just love thinking about that angle whenever there's a moment, when there's an opportunity for something to happen. I want to think about how people are going to respond based on their own awareness.
0: Yeah, it It does kind of take a lot of work. And I feel like the more you've kind of fleshed out the world in your head, the easier it becomes to kind of do that on the fly but it is it is a big part of making the world feel real like you said and, and it's definitely a skill that you've got to develop to, to really kind of build that experience for your players yeah that's funny I thinking about like the villagers right you hear a big crash or an explosion you run and open the door and that's what you see you know you don't see the projectile you see the the aftermath and of course you're gonna draw draw conclusions yeah so that's that's awesome <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. In, an, in another one of the side quests, our barbarian came from a village in the uh, Ten Towns, the Regged Glacier, where, uh, which had been wiped out by a warlord. And her side quest was all about this warlord coming back and trying to subdue all of the Uthgart barbarian tribes and join them together so that he could make himself a king. And there were various, you know, different set piece battles between the PC and the barbarians that they had been able to recruit to their own side versus this warlord and his own forces. And in one of these, the warlord sent an assassin to take his enemy leader out. But the assassin went for the one who seemed like the obvious leader he went for the paladin. Never occurred to him. That the barbarian, one of many other barbarians, might have been the one organizing this. No, it had to be the paladin, right? they got to be following this guy. And so the assassin goes after the paladin, steals his magic sword. Um, Of course, the paladin is not dead because the assassin did not finish the job. And, uh, you know, now everybody's got a reason to, to just hate the guy. But, you know little little mistakes like that right add a little bit of convincingness narratively
0: yeah i like that uh do you feel like uh there are any particular people who have been a really big influence on the way you run games and in particular i mean at the beginning you know was it kind of the friends that you saw running games i know a lot of people who who started playing way before there were streams and podcasts and everything to listen or watch That's kind of the people around you. But um, when you started up again, too, I'm interested to know if if, uh, you kind of looked for any specific sources to uh, give you inspiration.
1: In the early years, I didn't really have anyone to base my style off of other than my immediate friends. And... For a long, long time, my, my style was pretty much just sui generous, you know, because yeah. um, I, I had nobody else to watch in action um, nowadays in the streaming era. I have um, I've I've watched a lot of hours of critical role and stolen a lot of little tricks from Matthew Mercer. Uh, I don't do everything the way he does. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's necessarily uh, something I need to do to do ev- everything the way he uh, he does, but he has also been doing this for a very, very long time and has his own tricks, his own techniques that he uses. Um, the way he keeps track of initiative and like asks people to call it out in in numbered groups. I took that. Some of the things he does in terms of description, in terms of having little, you know, nugget sized side missions. I think that I think that indirectly is how I learned about what I later came to know as the five room dungeon. So, you know, you can, you can always look at people. You can, you can look at anybody DMing and either find something to imitate or see something that they're doing that um, you want to avoid in yourself. Every, every other DM that we watch is a teacher for us. Agreed. All right. Let's kind of transition to your
0: work now. So, you're best known for your blog and book series The Monsters Know What They're Doing. So, tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea and then how it has kind of morphed and changed over time into what it is currently.
1: I uh, it basically started as learning in public when I first ran Lost Mine of Phandelver. I I felt like those first two combat encounters against the goblins mm. were missing something. They didn't they didn't feel immersive enough to me. And I recognized that what was happening was I did not have a fully formed mental concept of what goblins were supposed to be like. Yeah, In AD&D, they were very poorly fleshed out. And in fact, most of your kind of basic cannon fodder humanoid types were very poorly fleshed out back then. Uh, there wasn't a lot to distinguish one from another. And so I wanted to make sure for my own purposes that I really, you know, got what being a goblin was all about. And I did that by closely reading the stat block line by line and trying to figure out the implications of of every aspect of the stat block. Yeah. and Very
0: clever idea, by the way. I hadn't ever thought about it this way until one of my previous guests... Josie, who who runs a podcast called Short Quest Long Rest, she raved about your book middle of last year and said, oh, the way, you know, the way he breaks down the stat blocks and looks at, at each of them and kind of decides how the monster would act be, based on that. And I, it just, I don't know, it was like a, a total paradigm shift in the way I thought about things, too, even before I, I started reading it. But yeah, it very, very clever.
1: And so long story short, um, I had this sort of personal epiphany right around the same time that I was looking to do more regular independent writing and had decided to start a blog. And my 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 bugbear, so to speak, <laughs> uh, all, all these years as a writer has always been trying to figure out what to write about. And at that particular moment, I thought, if I need this, maybe other people are going to enjoy this exercise too. Yeah. And so, so I just made that the, the subject of the blog. And then it turned out to be something that a lot of people appreciated and grew from there.
0: Yeah. And so now you've published your third book about this particular mm-hmm. subject, more monsters know what they're doing. And so yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun to kind of see the different things you're thinking of the book in between, of course, is uh... live to tell the tale. And they're all around the table and the, the the cover is all of them around the table you know recounting their tales, which I thought was a really clever cover. Yeah.
1: God, I love that cover. Yeah, it's a good I, one. I love that cover. I took I took the concept to the artist, and the artist just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. That illustration is my mouse pad now in my office. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Um yeah, so Tell
0: us about each of your books, just like a little snippet about what people can expect from them, and, and including your latest.
1: The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Combat Tactics for Dungeon Masters, is the basic volume. It covers the monster manual. And the what I think of as the follow-up volume is the, the new one, More Monsters Know What They're Doing, which covers the creatures in... Volo's Guide to Monsters and Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to uh, Amazon or whatever, and it identifies the monsters know what they're doing series which is a, a decision my publisher made i'm not sure i would have made the exact same choice right but they call they call live to tell the tale number 2 in the series and more monsters number 3 but i think of live to tell the tale as being sort of alongside and adjacent to the other two rather than Part of a whole with them, because the other two books, *The Monsters Know* and *More Monsters*, are very specifically DM facing, and *Live to Tell the Tale* is player facing. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I when I wrote *The Monsters Know What They're Doing*, uh, both the blog and the book, and people started writing to me and saying, "Wow, this is great advice! I got my first total party kill." (laughs) And I thought, oh, that is not what I was trying to accomplish with this. <laughs> you know, that that's when it dawned on me that when the monsters do know what they are doing, if the players don't know what they're doing, then those monsters can become significantly more deadly. Yes. Especially those goblins, uh, because Once you figure out what goblins really are all about, suddenly they become extremely nasty and extremely formidable. And unless you can beat them at their own game, they are very, very hard to beat.
0: Yeah, they are.
1: Um, But there there are certain other monsters too, like Shadows in particular, very, very deadly. If players don't know how to use their own abilities to their to their highest and best. So, so I decided, yeah, I need to write something for the players to balance the scales. And that's what Live to Tell the Tale is. And now, now I've been compared to an arms dealer who's <laughs> selling to both sides.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, that's not a bad way. <laughs> not a bad way to make some money, I guess. So you mentioned Shadows. Uh, as kind of a a really frightening monster if played well, do you have an absolute favorite monster in in either of the editions, uh, either of the books you've written based on abilities, flavor, lore, that makes them really compelling and interesting?
1: I have a sentimental favorite and the sentimental favorite is the Bodak. Mm. And the reason why that is my sentimental favorite is because in that side quest, the barbarian side quest, where the party are going around trying to recruit all of the different Uthgard tribes to their side. One of the uh, tribes was suspicious and hesitant and and a little xenophobic and said, we're not going to help you unless you take care of a problem for us. And the problem was this quote unquote spook that lived somewhere out in the woods and they were sending warriors out. After it to get rid of it, and uh, those warriors weren't coming back. So take care of the spook, and we think you know we'll think about joining you. And I needed something of a particular challenge level that had that particular flavor that was going to be an unfamiliar thing that the that, that players wouldn't necessarily be able to identify because one thing I learned a long, long time ago is that you can really up the tension in a in an encounter by not telling the players what it is they're fighting. Yes. And the less they know about it, the scarier it is. And uh, you know back in the day of our, our group of four, just before I ran my turn in the cycle, I did a little quickie one-person thing for each of the other three players and then brought them all together on on mine. And uh, what I did for one of them, my friend Matt, uh, was simply they had to fight a troll. But it was a Paul Anderson troll. It was the Loathsome Limbs troll from the Monster Manual, the kind where you cut off its limbs and the limbs keep writhing around on the ground and fighting you. And the only way you can stop them is by burning them. And so I had Matt and a couple of NPCs with him fight a troll, but didn't tell him what it was he was fighting, and just told him how it acted, and he loved it. He thought that was great. And so I wanted to do the same thing for my players in this side adventure, and I needed something, and I had just gotten Volo's Guide to Monsters, and the Bodak filled that bill perfectly. And so, and and I I think the illustration is really cool. I, yeah, yeah. It just, it, it did what I needed it to do when I needed it to do it. And so I dig that one. That one's always going to be in pocket for me.
0: It's a good choice. Uh, You mentioned, so it was kind of a a blog that you started and then it turned into um, books that you published. So I wanted to ask about the process of converting a blog into a book did you find that you had to do a lot of reworking of what you had written or was it pretty easy to kind of compile it uh, as such
1: uh it, it did require a fair amount of revision because well for starters oftentimes one of the one of the things i do with the blog is when i make mistakes and i make plenty I always leave the mistake on the blog. I just strike it out and, you know, insert replacement text because I want to send that message that this is kind of an ongoing learning experience for all of us and I'm not infallible. Right. And if somebody helps me out, points out a mistake I made, you know, I'm going to say, okay, yeah, I made a mistake. Here's the correction. I fix my mistakes in public. That's just sort of something that, that as, as a matter of principle for me is very important to do. Now, of course, once you get to the book, all of those things are now incorporated into the text. And I'm lucky to have an editor who uh, also plays D and D fifth edition and will call me on what seems to him like a mistake or will ask me to clarify something or, show my work, yeah. you know, and make sure that the recommendations that I'm giving really are are fully sound and valid. So that has been a big help. And also for each book, I'm, I'm contractually obligated to add a certain number of words of original material. So mm. there's always going to be things in the books that are not on the blog, you know, and the process for that is the same. I'm just, I'm just writing the material from scratch. But being able to write the books over a long period of time and then compile them and then just, you know, add however much additional material I need to have is very helpful. I did not have the benefit of that with the most recent book that I have been working on, which I'll talk about yeah. a little bit toward the end. And boy, that book kicked my butt. It took so long to write, (laughs) way longer than I meant it to. And and unfortunately, the blog has kind of gone dead in the meantime. As soon as I get my... uh, By by the time uh, people are listening to this, hopefully I have gotten my new banner art and done my site redesign and I'm publishing regularly again.
0: Cool. Yeah, well, we have that to look forward to then. So next up is a question from one of my patrons, which is, how do you suggest keeping track of really complex abilities in combat this is from one of my patrons who's actually one of my friends who just ran a game for us recently uh, where we fought this nasty draco lich with you know tons of different options and legendary actions and that kind of thing and so yeah he just wants to know yeah lots of abilities legendary actions tracking minions and you know other creatures that are around it what what are some tips that you have for streamlining those types of combats and then combat in general.
1: So the number one tip I'm going to give is make as many choices as you can in advance of your game session. And in fact, that is, that is the mentality, the motivation behind the entire blog. When you are DMing, you are keeping track of so much, so many moving parts that You are not going to make the best decisions you can if you have to try to make all those decisions on the fly You want to do as much of your thinking as you possibly can In the preparation phase before your game session ever starts before your combat encounter ever starts You want to make as many decisions as possible yourself. Mm. And so the the main point of the monsters know what they're doing is to say Here is how these monsters are going to fight. This is what they're going to do. These are the powers they're going to use and the circumstances under which they're going to use them. So I have done this work for you, or I've done it for myself because I I use it the same way. I use my own work that way. Here's what you need to know. Write it down in whatever form of note-taking is is easy for you to read and process on the fly okay write yourself a few little if then statements if you need to if the paladin does this then do that you know if the party try to go through this place do this whatever nail down the sequence nail down those decision points figure out what the result of each of those decision points is going to be choice a choice B this happens that happens Script it out for yourself beforehand make a little flow chart if that's how you if that's how you roll yeah And then when you are in the encounter itself You can be more present you can pay more attention to what the players are doing and saying and you are not now risking Making grossly suboptimal decisions because you're under pressure.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. All right, the next question I put in here, and it's about homebrewing monsters. Do you do that frequently or do you kind of stick to the stat blocks?
1: I don't do it a lot. Okay. Uh, I do it once in a while. And I usually only do it when there isn't already something published that will work yeah sometimes i'll get an idea like oh um they went to the feywild and they are doing things for this archfey named iwatari and uh she sours on them and so now they're fleeing they're trying to get out of her realm and they're being pursued by her champions you know i'll homebrew the champions to give them something interesting that's going to challenge each player in the party or. I have a concept of this artificer. Well, now he's, he's making these armaments and these constructs. I have to decide what the constructs are going to be. I'll do a little homebrewing with that kind of stuff. But mostly, I try to remix what's already published.
0: This episode of How Not to DM is brought to you by Gemmed Firefly. Need a fresh look for the new year? Head on over to GemmedFirefly.com for the newest tees, mugs, and home goods styled with D&D gamer humor and aesthetics. As always, Gemmed Firefly makes every shirt to order, bringing you all of the softest and most comfortable shirts that thousands have come to love. And now, listeners of the show get a discount when you use the code DRAGON at checkout. Find your new favorite shirt at GemmedFirefly.com now. And Homebrew Havoc. This year, the most creative minds from the world of tabletop role-playing have joined together to create an actual play fantasy adventure that is not to be missed. Explore a truly collaborative world come to life, only able to exist thanks to the imagination of a global community. You may have seen and heard actual play fantasy shows before, but never like this. Join us for Homebrew Havoc. Find its creator, Paul, on Twitter, at d 20 And you should go check out Paul's work editing videos as well, he's one of my patrons and he's got a ton of really cool stuff he works on. As always, links to all of this great content from all of these creators is available in my episode notes. And now, let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for Season 2. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos. This week, Keith and I are going to use some random generators online to pick a level, a difficulty, and a setting which we'll use to create a totally original encounter. To start off, uh, do we want to limit ourselves to a specific range of levels of players, or do we want to roll randomly for that as well?
1: Oh, I don't know. Let's see where it takes us. Okay.
0: Then we'll start off with that, which is just roll a d20 and let's see what level of party we've got here. We'll assume four All players, right. just kind of standard party size. Uh, I rolled four. Okay, a level four party. Uh, okay, now a d4 for whether it's going to be easy, medium, hard, or deadly.
1: All right, uh, this one's going to be easy. This is a one. Okay,
0: an easy encounter. All right, next One, two, three, four, eight. Okay, a D8 for where we're setting this encounter. All right, I rolled a two. Okay, that's going to be forest. All right, and then it's how many monsters we want to add. So I'm thinking it's kind of like got a minimum and a maximum selection. So let's stick to like a D8 and just see where that well, that lands us for max monsters. All right, I got three. Okay. So, you can add up to three monsters, and you're designing something relatively easy for four level four characters in a forest. So, what, what comes All to right. mind if you're going to put something together for this?
1: Well, I think that if it's going to be that easy... I'm gonna play it for comedy. Mm-hmm. So, looking for something a little bit silly. Silly plus forest leads me to think maybe goblins, but but like more more of the clownish variety rather than the uh, deadly variety. Right,
0: jump from behind the tree and stab you in the back variety.
1: Or uh, or maybe Fae. Fae would be good, silly, plus forest. They're level four. You know, uh, d- depending on the forest, level four would be a good level at which to have an encounter with a unicorn. It could. Or uh, maybe a couple of centaurs. I guess we, we decided there are going to be three of these, right? Up so- to three, yeah. Up to three, mm-hmm. yeah. There's not going to be three unicorns, definitely. But maybe three centaurs. What are some other possibilities? See, what I would usually do right now is uh, like pick a CR range and then go to D&D Beyond and start looking things up. Mm-hmm. You can do that if That's, you want. Yeah, all right. It's, let's, it's part let's of your process, uh, Let's uh, take do a look here. Yeah. All right, so we want forest creatures... There's gonna be three of these, so I think they're gonna be tiny, small, or medium. I don't think they're gonna be huge or anything. Well, we'll throw large in there just to see what we get. Eh, orcs? Yeah, it could be orcs. It could be uh, maybe some some like a little orc scouting party out there, and they trash talk each other a little bit.
0: Love a good uh, love a good flexing confrontation. Oh,
1: here we go. All right, let's hear it. Satyrs. Yeah. We're going to take three se- they're going to uh, they're going to be going through the forest and there's going to be some some satyrs drinking around a fire. We'll see how the uh, we'll see where the social interaction takes it from there. That would be that would be a good fun one. Now, if I wanted to make it a little bit darker, I noticed that vine blight also falls into this range. So if I wanted to just uh, give a sense of, um, we're entering a a section of the forest that's spookier here, and uh, I just wanted to give them a taste of the spooky before they're facing any real challenges. Vine blights would be good for that. A
0: sign of what's to come. Yeah. I love blights. Yes, exactly. Harbinger. Yeah.
1: Okay, so uh,
0: would it be like, they bed down for the night and then all of a sudden the Vine Blights, you know, ambush them, <laughs> ambush them, so to speak. Or uh, uh, would it be something else, do you think?
1: No, I think they would just. I, th- I think this is something that happens near the beginning of the adventuring day. Mm. They, they just stumble through some Vine Blight territory and the Vine Blights. Um, do they have natural camouflage? Yeah, I was, was going to ask. Like yeah, they've got false appearance. When they're motionless, they're indistinguishable from a tangle of vines. So I think, yeah, I think they're just hiding out amid the foliage, and uh, they're hacking the PCs. through,
0: you know, having to bushwhack yeah.
1: through, and then all of a sudden, the PCs are marching through, and suddenly the entangling plants are growing up around them, and. Uh, And they're getting tangled up and then the Vine Blights move in to to strike.
0: Excellent. I love it.
1: All right. Uh, The last couple
0: questions here. First one is your parting words of wisdom and encouragement to new and aspiring DMs and GMs. And I will add on to the end of that, perhaps also authors or writers who are kind of in the TTRPG space. Your advice to them.
1: My advice to DMs, remember... You do not need to know everything. It is not, I'm speaking speaking from my uh, experience as a copy editor, which I did for many, many years, you don't need to know everything. What you need is that little alarm that goes off in your head and tells you when you need to look something up. Mm. And then you need to know where to look it up and, and what to look it up in and where to find it. So, I would say to new DMs, do not expect yourself to know every single rule. Don't sweat that, but prepare yourself. Know what rules exist and how they are arranged in the books, in the core books, and know where to find them when you need them. Stick some post it notes in if that helps you. I have been engaging with this now long enough that. I associate all the chapters of the core books with their topics. So I know, for example, in the Player's Handbook, classes are Chapter 3, uh, backgrounds are Chapter 4, gear is Chapter 5, uh, feats and multi-classing are Chapter 6, ability scores are 7, and uh, adventuring is Chapter 8, combat is Chapter 9, spellcasting is Chapter 10. In the Dungeon Master's Guide, I know that the uh encounter building table is in chapter three i know that all the treasure is in chapter seven all of the uh stuff about all of the extra tables that you didn't realize you needed until the situation came up those are all in chapter eight and in fact in in my copy of the dungeon master's guide they are all within a few pages of page 249 and so i just Anytime I'm looking for one of those things, I open up to page two forty nine and flip because <laughs> I know it's I know it's there somewhere yeah. within a couple of pages. All of the stuff about home brewing is in chapter nine. So, um, or or uh, optional rules like being able to disarm, being able to overrun, tumble those things. So, if there happens to be a rule that I'm blanking on or something I want to check the wording on. I know exactly where to open my books to find that stuff. And uh, nowadays, when so much of my gaming is online by virtue of necessity, uh, one of the things I really like about D&D Beyond is how systematic its URLs are, because it means I can go to the URL bar in my browser and just start typing the name of a monster, and my browser remembers the last time I looked it up, and it takes me straight to that particular monster page or uh, I can do the same thing with a spell I can type DMG or XGTE or TCOE and it's going to take me to my digital copy of the Dungeon Master's Guide or Xanathar's or Tasha's so I can go straight to the uh, table of contents with that or I can start typing a keyword like if I start typing ADV it's going to take me to adventuring gear which is chapter 5 of the player's handbook so I can look up a price. Mm knowing those shortcuts so that you can look things up very quickly super helpful and it saves you from having to fret about knowing those things off the top of your head you don't need to know them off the top of your head if you're gonna if you're going to memorize anything if there's anything that you're gonna know cold make it the conditions in in appendix A of the player's handbook yeah Because those are a big deal. Um, And those are going to come into play a lot. Know the difference between grappled and restrained. That's a biggie.
0: I've never heard anyone give this specific advice. So I love it because everyone I feel like says, don't look it up. Just make a ruling and move on. But you're saying... And it, it, I'm not saying- no
1: look it up, but know where yeah, to yeah. look it then, up so then that it's you're fast. not wasting people's yeah. time. I, and yeah. I
0: love that. And you know, I'm the same way. I I can just Google it very quickly and, and pull it up very quickly. The same way you know what your your browser has, you know, your history and that kind of thing. So I I do similar, and it's because I know what I'm looking for that I can get to it quickly and not hold everybody up too much. So, but yeah, that's that's I, I like that. I like that instead of you just saying, you know, use improv or or your own ruling as a crutch until you look it up later, actually, you know, figure out where it is, but just be quick about it. I like that.
1: I would not make up a ruling on the fly, unless I were convinced that a rule didn't already exist somewhere that I could find it. Yeah,
0: I like that. As far as uh, authors or writers, do you have any specific advice for people out there who are, are working on those projects?
1: If you are trying to get a blog off the ground, write about, let's say, 20 posts before you put anything live. I wrote three weeks worth of entries before I brought my blog live. And then for the first months when I was writing the blog, I wrote one a day and I posted one a day. So that for a long time, I always had 20 posts lined up waiting to go live so that people wouldn't just think, oh, where did he go? New blogger, must have quit, you know? I did get derailed a few months into writing the blog by circumstances that upended the world. But for a long time, I was able to publish a new post every single weekday. And that absolutely gave me the foundation to have a blog that people could come back to and use as a reference because there was enough content on it and it was being posted with enough regularity. Um, and, And honestly, in fact, the momentum that that gave me has sustained me through the periods when I have not been able to post at all or with any regularity when I was posting you know, without, without that solid base of articles, um, to, uh, to keep me going until the books came out. Um, I think it, it would have been a failure probably. Mm.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's funny. This show started initially as a blog and a few posts in one of my friends said, can we just record the interview instead? And here we are. Yeah. Uh, that is good advice. Uh, I certainly did not take it. I just started posting stuff uh, and hoping that people would read it. But you know, uh, to, to I think that that's probably the wiser approach because then there's a bunch of stuff for people to read when they first show up, uh, and it's not yeah, it's not going to have the appearance of oh, where did they go kind of thing. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, you alluded to it earlier. Uh, new projects that you're working on. Anything that you want to tell us about? You know, anything exciting coming up? in your uh, in your projects that you want to plug here
1: i'm just about finished with final revisions on my fourth book which is going to be called how to defend your lair that book is going to take real world principles of building security and area defense and apply them to lair construction so it's i'm 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 advocating a new approach to dungeon design in which instead of drawing a map and then populating it with monsters and sprinkling in treasure here and there, I am recommending starting with the owner of the lair and the assets that they are trying to defend, whether that is treasure or something else, and then designing the entire lair around the defense of those assets.
0: All right. Sounds really interesting. I know that my dungeon design is, as you have described, uh, draw some rooms and put some stuff in it. So I'm looking forward to improving uh, that aspect of my game as well. All right. Uh, Well, thanks so much, Keith, for being on. Uh, Where can people find your work and uh, connect with you on social media?
1: I am on Twitter at at KeithAmmen. Uh, My home website is spyandowl.com, and uh, my books are published by Saga Press, uh, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. You can get them at your local independent bookstore, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. If you live in Canada, Indigo. um, They are available in ebook formats, audiobook formats. And uh, if you would like to order them through your friendly local game store, and their distributor does not carry them, um, you can tell the store that they can order it wholesale through Simon and Schuster Distribution.
0: Excellent. And yes, I have I have the first copy or the, the the your first book, and and I really love it, and I can't recommend it enough to everybody out there. And like I said, I've had past guests say that. Your books have been a real influence on them running games, so it's fun to talk to the person who everyone's been talking about so far. Uh, Thanks so much for joining
1: us, Keith. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, James Tricasso, lead designer for MCDDM Studios and a contributor to numerous other D&D official and supplemental content. Matt Mercer was super
1: generous and was like, we're writing this book together. Like, you know, obviously I know the world and stuff, but like when we sat down to write it, he was like, I kind of know what's going on here. Does somebody
0: want to write about that? so I got to write the Icelcross section and so Matt was like you know I I know that these things are going on there right like I know a city crashed into Icelcross, and that they had this magical technology and there might be some things in stasis that's kind of what I know and I was like oh cool so like can there be this and he was like yeah there can be that and I was like so can there be like this yeah and I was like can we call it Aeor like can we call the city that crashed there Aeor and he's like yeah go nuts so like to be able to do all of that that stuff was was super cool so towards the end of critical role season two when they're in icel cross every second was a joy for me because i was like oh i made that oh, i made that i made that you know like that was cool to hear more about james's work his advice for fledgling designers and more make sure to tune in next week remember to check out my patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks Next time you get the chance, share this episode with your friends and family around your gaming table. Another great way to help boost the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating the show on Spotify. I appreciate all of you for helping me grow. Thank you to the team at T4C Studios for helping with the editing and production of this episode. My new intro and outro music is by Daniel Zambo, The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat. And the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat20s for me.